Well, this morning, if you're a guest with us, uh, we've been in a continuing series called Expectancy. And with this, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. And the way we do it, we've been going verse by verse to the Gospel of Mark. So it's been a, a lengthy series, and we've got much more to come. But just continuing to dig into God's Word and allowing the exposure of our hearts to God's Word to create an expectancy and a hunger and an encounter with Jesus as He is transforming us, as He is changing us, and He is shaping our lives and our hearts to be more like Him. I'm going to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 7. Uh, We'll look at overall, the entire section we're looking at is Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, but we're just going to look at a few of the opening verses and a few of the closing verses and then talk about them together. And as you turn there, uh, I'd imagine most here are uh, people of routine of some sort. And for me, I have a number of different routines I'll go through on different days and just different tasks in the day. When it comes to Sunday mornings, I have a typical morning routine that I'll go through each, each Sunday just before arriving here. And um, I'll get up somewhere between 4.30 and 5 in the morning and just to begin to spend time in prayer, spend time in Scripture, spend time in my notes, and just to make sure that not only am I ready mentally to deliver and to be able to speak what God's put on my heart, but to make sure my heart's ready, to give my heart time to listen to God, to be able just to align my heart and my mind and my desires in more align with Him. But typically, that's my typical morning routine on a Sunday morning. It's just part of myself getting ready to be able to stand here in this moment. Well, a few weeks ago, we had uh, a guest speaker with us who was visiting from Cairo, one that he's been with us a few different times. If you've been with us as a church a number of times, you've been able to hear him. But on that Sunday morning, not needing to go over a message or have notes to prepare or things, I, I decided to change my routine a little bit. I still got up between the 435 window, but instead of sitting and and going over my notes and reading scripture, I grabbed my headphones and I took my phone and I went out to begin to walk in. And I was just going to go spend time, a long time of prayer, a long time walking, listening to scripture, listening to worship, and and just being able to center my heart on Christ through that, just through that that process in the morning. And I got up again, same time, so I got up and I headed out the door pitch black outside, as it would typically be at that time in the morning. Uh, And there really was no moon out, or if it was very little, so very little moonlight. It was just a beautiful night to be able to, a beautiful morning to go walking and praying, looking at creation, looking at the stars, and just being reminded of God's love and care for us, and, and just walking. But as I was walking, where our subdivision is and where our house is at, once you leave the subdivision, and once you leave the homes that are there and get away from the light, the lights that are there, you have a stretch of about a mile from where our home is at or where our subdivision is to really where the next set of lights are at and other homes are there. So it's about a, a mile. And that stretch of a mile is through the woods. You have trees on both sides, so you have your road, you have trees on both sides, and then you have your walking path, and I on the sidewalk. And I was walking on the sidewalk, and it's a rather windy, twisty, turning type sidewalk. As I'm walking, and I'm realizing on one side I have the woods, and I can see the, the stars, but it's just, it's pitch black, there's no cars, there's no headlights, there's no lights, so you're walking in darkness. On one side I have the, the woods, and I can, you know, you can just hear rustling and things in the woods. And the other side, I'm on the sidewalk, and then I have a very deep ditch between me and the road. And as I'm walking and I'm thinking, I've walked this road, I've ran this, this trail, I've, I've ridden my bike hundreds of times on this trail, but in darkness, I really don't know what's coming next. And, and I really, I wasn't afraid of walking in the dark, but I was afraid of walking into the ditch. 
falling into the ditch. And, you know, Teresa might be getting up sometime later and then realizing, wait, where's Steve? He still hasn't come home and begin to wonder. So I, I've started realizing, you know, it would probably be a little bit more sensible for me to flip on my flashlight while I'm walking and take my phone out, turn on the flashlight while I'm walking so I can... So I can at least see where the trail is, see where I'm going. So, and I, and I realize not only would that do, would that illuminate the trail for me to be able to see where I'm walking, but I realize it would serve a secondfold purpose is that it would illuminate any eyes watching me from the woods. I figured I'd like at least be able to see what's watching me before it eats me rather than just complete darkness. So, so I, I have my light on and I'm walking on the sidewalk and I'm just, it's again, completely black except for my, my flashlight shining just a few feet in front of me. And within a few minutes of my, me turning it on, I'm walking through the darkness, and I, something black is sitting right by the trail where I'm walking. And I, so I stop for just a moment, thinking, that does not look like a rock. And so I, I shine my light a little bit more and make a noise and things, and it turns and looks at me, and I see two eyes looking at me, and I realize, this is definitely interesting. I'm looking, I get a little bit closer. It's a skunk sitting right in the darkness by the road. And it occurred to me that had I not turned on my flashlight, I would have walked right on top of this skunk and most likely gotten sprayed out of the darkness, not knowing what hit me. And so I started thinking in my mind. In fact, I went home. I was telling my wife and my kids all about this encounter, and, uh, and I, was, I was watching, uh, describing it to them. On the way to church, we're having a chuckle that morning, and I think my wife or one of my kids, they asked, they said, Dad, what would you have done if you'd gotten sprayed by the skunk on a Sunday morning? I mean, you were, you know, you wouldn't have had time to get it all off you and be able to be in church, and I figured that would have made for a rather interesting Sunday. You know, I could see we'd probably just put a lot of big fans here across the front and just keep them blowing this way or blowing that. One of the ways, whatever way would work to best keep the, the sense on stage. But as I'm thinking about that, I was walking and, and had walked that trail hundreds of times, had ran it many times. Having the light on did for me what my memory and my tradition and my, my rhythm could not do. It illuminated. It revealed. It showed me things that needed to be dealt with or I needed to decide on rather than just blindly walking into them. And that really reminds me when it comes to God's Word this morning, when it's in your life and in my life, that the Bible tells us God's Word illuminates our hearts. His Word illuminates our minds. His Word illuminates our lives. It illuminates our decisions, our motives. And it's something that tradition cannot do. It doesn't matter how many years you've been attending church, how many years you've been around church. Going to church and walking through the routine and the rhythm of church does not illuminate your heart the way God's Word by His Holy Spirit does. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is take time to look at God's Word and allow it to illuminate our hearts. God's words, His desire is through His Word to align the inward attitude of our heart with the nature of God's heart, to continually reveal and create His character within us. And this morning, the story we're going to look at gives us a very vivid picture of that as Jesus is talking with some religious leaders this morning. So let's look in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 5. We'll talk about them for a few moments, and then we'll look at verses 20 through 23. But we will be, in a sense, covering all of these verses uh, this morning by way of the topic of what we're covering. But Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. 
The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. And so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why do your disciples live according to the why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And the story really begins much like many of the other stories we've seen along the way in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is immediately confronted with a group of individuals these religionists these Pharisees who are looking for issue with Jesus. They're looking for issue with Jesus. They're looking for issue with his disciples. And as we've said really numerous times throughout this, through the story in the Gospel of Mark, is that if you're looking for what's not happening, you're going to find it. But if you look for what God is doing, you'll, you'll be, be sure to find it and see it in your life as well. And we see that these individuals come looking. They have a preset agenda, a preset focus. They come and they gather in, they surround around Jesus, and they begin to question him. And because they don't come with an open heart and an open mind, but they come with a preset agenda looking for an issue, it says immediately they find issue with Jesus' disciples. And if you keep in mind, his disciples are his disciples. They follow him. They're learning from him. So because they're having issue with Jesus' disciples, their issue is with Jesus. They're pointing out that if your disciples aren't doing it right, then that would be an issue with you as a teacher. That would be an issue with you as a leader. That would be an issue with you as an instructor. And so they're pointing out this issue with the disciples. And the issue with the disciples that's being pointed out is what is identified in the Gospel of Mark as being the tradition of the elders. And the tradition of elders was a number of customs, really, really a number of customs and traditions that numbered in the thousands. They weren't written down. They were orally transmitted from one generation to the next. And they were intended to, to really regulate every part of a person's life. Every one of the traditions focused on the outward things that someone needs to do to be able to hold to these traditions and to hold to these verbal customs that had been passed along. The one that's given in Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it's in parentheses in your Bible, is a specific example of that, and this washing of hands. And everything that was given, including this, this um, tradition of washing of your hands, was intended to regulate and to guide an, an individual's external life. It was to completely regulate one's life in such a way that if the Old Testament, if the Old Testament law was vague or was silent on a particular subject, then the oral tradition that was passed along by the elders, by the the religious leaders over the generations, would be very specific and very intentional and very vocal and very explicit on what should be done. They added to and ultimately ignored God's word for an individual's life. They completely missed the point of God's Word in their lives and made everything external. In fact, anything that did speak to internal issues, they took and expanded and altered and transformed so it became focused on the religious performance of an individual rather than the inward transformation of an individual's heart. So Mark gives a specific example again in verses 3 and 4, talking about the washing of hands. And the washing of hands that they speak to is that it's not a matter of they're not concerned over personal hygiene, they're not concerned over the passing of germs, but rather the concern is washing off anything that could have been in contact with someone who was a non-Jew. 
If they were in the marketplace interacting with people coming and selling, then selling things, then they would intentionally come back and wash and do, go through a ceremonial washing, not because they didn't want germs, but because they didn't want to become unclean or defiled by those who were not Jews. And that's what they begin to look at, at Jesus' disciples and say, your disciples are not following the tradition of the elders and the religious crowd was calling Jesus to task on this. And while the traditions and practices dealt with the external things of the day, it completely overlooked and failed and failed to address what God looks at. So Jesus turns their attention to what they failed to see, and that's what we're going to look at in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse number 20. It says, He went on, What comes out of a person is what defiles them, or in some Bibles it might say makes them unclean. But what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is with evil, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. And what Jesus does in this moment is what he does is completely shocking to everyone who's around listening, including the religious leaders who are there. Where what the religious experts in the day had been telling Jesus and telling individuals that what you do outwardly impacts who you are inwardly, Jesus totally dismisses what they taught, taught and turns the attention inwardly to the heart. He turns the attention inwardly to see what's happening in your heart. He says the heart's the source. It's not a matter of outside-in living. It's a matter of inside-out living. Allowing God to transform your heart. He cares about what's happening in your heart. Allowing Him to transform your heart ultimately will begin to reflect and impact the things that are happening externally. And so Jesus turns their attention to this. And in addressing these religious leaders and those who are listening, what Jesus does in this moment is He addresses, addresses what a defective spiritual life looks like. He addresses a defective spiritual life. That it's a life that's more focused on the outside, on the external rather than the inside. That it's a life that is more focused on pleasing others than God. And it can look any number of ways. It can look out, look out of concern for what others might think. It can look out, look like religious performance. It can look like any number of things. But it all fails to deal with the key issue. And the key issue is the internal issues of our hearts. And so that's what Jesus brings the attention to, the issues of the heart, not the external, not the tradition, not the routines, but the internal issues of the heart. And there's a number of things that we can learn from what Jesus says regarding the heart. But let me just give you a few of them. The first one is, is simply this, and I've already stated it. God is always concerned with what's happening in your heart. He's always concerned with what's happening in your heart. Biblically, when the scriptures talk about the heart, you might look through Proverbs, you may look in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that you'll see a number of things identified, whether it speaks to the heart or the mind or a number of things. But when we look in scripture, the heart of mankind is addressing the intellectual, emotional, and moral capacity of a person. It's their will and their desire. So when I speak of your heart, it's your will, it's your desire. It, it involves the things that, that shape your decisions, the things that influence your choices. That it, it's, it's the sum of who you are. And Jesus' attention is always on the heart. 
If you look through the Gospel of Mark, if you take time to look back from the passages we've already looked at, or perhaps you haven't been with us and you've listened to some of the podcasts, you'll see that Jesus' attention is always on the heart of a person. In Mark chapter 2, when Jesus is addressing the man who has been lowered down in front of a crowd, he's in a house and the crowd is so thick around him, the religious leaders are there, his disciples are there, and the crowds are there, that there's a man that, people, that his friends want to get to Jesus, and so they tear a hole in the roof and they lower Jesus down in front of him, and he, they lower him down in front of Jesus, rather, and as he gets in front of Jesus, as he's there, Jesus recognizes the issues of the heart of those that are around him. When Jesus goes to deal with the matter of this man's physical ailments, he begins with a heart issue. He deals with a sin issue. Later in the Gospel of Mark, as you look forward, if you look in Mark chapter 3, there's another healing that takes place. And just before the healing takes place, it says that Jesus looks around and is, is upset over the stubbornness of the hearts that are there. He's always focused upon the heart. And you'll see this in every Gospel, that Jesus is always focused on the heart issues. He's always dealing and getting to the matter of an individual's heart. That again and again in the Gospels, Jesus always turns the attention inward to matters of the heart. He says it's the, the external stuff, the external fluff, the external religious activity we go through never reveals or even deals with the heart issues. That's why you can be sitting here this morning It can have any number of things happening in your heart and be sitting this morning dealing with doubt and questions or or been struggling with lust or been struggling with any number of things. And sitting here in this room this morning does not deal with the heart issues. Jesus always looks at the heart. In fact, when you look through Scripture, you'll see from in the Old Testament and New Testament together that over 1,000 times it identifies God looking at our hearts. He's always concerned with what's happening in our hearts. In Second Chronicles 69, it says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. What it reveals is not only is He working in the hearts of those who are committed to Him, but He's examining hearts. His focus is always on the heart. He's concerned with your heart. He's concerned with the things that burden you. He's concerned with the things that ensnare you. He's concerned with the things that you're concerned over. And while you sit here, or even if you listen via podcast later, the huge struggles that you're dealing with inwardly, God cares about. Because He cares about the heart. He cares about the freedom of your heart. He cares about the changes in your heart. He cares and concern, is concerned about the heart because He sees the heart. Secondly, The second thing we can see from the story when it comes to matters of our hearts, secondly, is a clear conscience does not necessarily mean a right heart. A clear conscience does not necessarily mean a right heart. In both sections where Jesus is talking and the religious leaders are talking in Mark chapter 7, in both spaces and in both places that word defiled or unclean is used by, by both Jesus and the religious leaders And the word means dirty or filthy or in need of renewal or cleaning, and it can be used in in a common phrase speaking of a garment that's, that's dirty, that's needing to be changed, needing to be washed. And while the religionists of the day were using it to speak to the hands, the external things of Jesus' disciples and the traditions they were not upholding, Jesus uses it to speak to the heart. But if we take time to look at these religious leaders of the day, 
We can see it not only in this story, but in really every story they're interacting with Jesus. They've, it's clear that they function with a clear conscience, yet they replete, and they repeatedly address the issues, yet Jesus rather repeatedly addressed the issues of their hearts. They followed their traditions to the smallest detail, but they overlooked the major things that God would deal with to reveal and deal with their hearts. In fact, Jesus would call them tombs that were painted over nicely, hiding death and decay within. That they functioned with a very clear conscience. They weren't bothered by their minds or their consciences. But yet they were, their hearts were not clean. And Jesus would deal with that repeatedly. And they serve as a reminder to us that a clear conscience does not necessarily mean that our hearts are right before God. In 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the Apostle Paul says this. He says that though my conscience is clear, that does not make me innocent. And that it's a reminder that just because we have a clear conscience doesn't necessarily mean that things are right within our hearts. Sometimes we can allow things to sit for so long in our hearts that it's no longer an issue. It's no longer something that that we're concerned over, our conscience nags us about or or reminds us of. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are right before God. Jeremiah, the Old Testament prophet, said that the human heart is deceitful above all things that it's able to deceive and to fool even the person that it occupies. And just because we have a clear conscience doesn't necessarily mean that things are right in our hearts before God. In fact, when speaking of some of the sins that originate in the heart, Jesus in verses 20 through 23, by all means, was not giving an exhaustive list that we were to compare our lives to, but rather was pointing out some of the key issues that originate in the heart but he uses an interesting word. In, in many of our Bibles today, it's translated as lewdness. A more, accurate, a more accurate rendering of this word in older translations is lasciviousness. And that's a, that's a big word. It's a word that a lot of times we may not hear or even will, will read anymore because of newer translations. But the, the root word, the, mean, the word means filthiness or indecency or shamelessness. And it speaks of a chief, character, a chief characteristic of his behavior that is open and shameless in, de- in decency. In other words, it's speaking of someone whose conscience is no longer bothered by what they do. There's no restraint. There's no holding back. But it identifies that the con- their conscience is not bothered by the decisions or actions or things they're doing. And so they do them openly. They're not, they don't, it doesn't matter who sees or what's done, it's done openly. And it points to the fact that just because we have a clear conscience doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are always right. And we can read things like this that, that Jesus speaks to. We can read through this list of things and incredibly large um, and even words that we'd want to avoid, words like adultery and greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and slander and arrogance and folly. And we can read this list of things that Jesus says and it sounds so extreme. They sound like, like the, the biggies and the extreme ends where things, where ultimately people can end up. And the temptation when we read a list like that, the temptation when I hear a list like that, is very easy to exempt ourselves from its application because we don't see the issues that may be in our lives as being major issues or as extreme as what Jesus says. Or secondly, we see others who are engaged in far worse levels of some of the things Jesus has talked about than what we'd see in our lives. And what we often do in those moments is we, our habit is to assume the best in our intentions and the worst in others' actions. 
And so we dismiss Jesus' words and what he's identifying as issues of the heart. We dismiss ourselves from its application because we can point to others who have it far worse. We can point to areas that perhaps are areas of concern but aren't the extreme as what Jesus is saying. And when we do that, what we do is what Jesus identifies with the religious leaders is looking for a reason to exempt our lives and nullify God's word from applying to our lives. And something I've, I've shared with an individual recently is that a gospel-professing Christian should never be looking for ways to exempt their life from the application of God's Word. Rather, we should continually look for greater ways to apply it. In other words, as a gospel-professing Christian, if you're a Christian this, this morning, you're here and not merely just saying, I'm Christian because I go to church, but a gospel-professing Christian, you believe the truth and the accuracy of God's Word, and, and you, re- you believe all that it says. Our goal as a gospel-professing Christian this morning and really every day is not to find reasons, is not to look at Scripture and find reasons to not apply it into our lives. If that's a position that you live from then, or, or think from, then that's a position that really should allow the Holy Spirit to deal with and, and bring great question as to why that's a position of your heart. But as a professing follower of Jesus Christ, our desire is to continually bring our life in greater alignment and submission to God's Word. Because it's His Word that brings transformation. It's His Word that changes our hearts. It's His Word that cuts inside and deals with our heart's issue. And Jesus' point in this passage is not a matter of, are these issues manifesting in your life? But rather that the heart is the root issue of all the sin that one will deal with. And just because your conscience is clear, it doesn't necessarily mean that sin isn't there. That's what Jesus is saying. He says the external has nothing, really no bearing on the internal. It's the heart issue that has to be dealt with. The third thing Jesus says and really reveals in this passage is that an unchecked heart is a sinful heart. An unchecked heart is a sinful heart. Jesus is teaching in Mark chapter 7, uh, verses 20 through 23. We've already read it. But he begins, he's revealing the natural progression of the human heart when it's left to its own desires and passions. And you'll see this in Romans chapter 1 as well. If you've, if you've read through Romans chapter 1, it talks about this natural progression of a heart away from God. But the heart is the source of all sin issues, and its natural inclination is to drift away from God and, and towards sin, not to drift towards God. So the natural progression of nature is away from order, not towards it. That's why when you mow your lawn over the summer, that your lawn doesn't just naturally drift towards staying mowed, and the weeds just naturally drift towards dying off and moving into the neighbor's yard and all of those things, the natural drift is from order into, is away from order. It's, a, it's away from order, not towards it. That's why in a couple of weeks or a week or so that you have to go back out and you say, oh, I got to deal with this weed again, or I need to mow again, because the, your grass, the natural order of things is to drift away from order, not towards it. And that's the same in our hearts. Our hearts have a natural inclination to drift away from God, not towards God. Romans 1 makes it clear that the laws of God are written on our heart to reveal our need for Him. But there's also the need for the gospel to recognize the need for inward transformation. Romans chapter 8, verse 7 tells us this. It says that the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's laws, nor can it do so. That the natural position of our heart is a, is a position of hostility, drifting away from God. 
that it resists God, it's hostile to him and his ways, that it embraces the very things that are opposed to all that God is. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7. Notice the progression. He says it flows out of the heart. It says from within. Secondly, it develops in the human mind that evil thoughts come. And thirdly, it expresses itself in action. And you can see the list. That it begins in the heart, is, is considered in the mind, and expresses itself in action. The natural drift away from God. And we can look closely and, and see the same progression in our lives. That it starts as a, as a desire, it influences thoughts, and it manifests itself in action. And the temptation that many of us face the temptations that many of us face in this room this morning when you look over your life and you, you look through your life, the temptation that we have is to identify a person or a thing or a site or a place that perhaps brings out the struggle in you. Sometimes we might say, well, that person makes me so mad when they do this, and we identify the person as the issue. And while there's wisdom to avoid tempting situations, the real issue is not the place you're going or the person you're with. Those are simply opportunities for the issues of your heart to manifest themselves. In fact, I think at times God permits people into our lives that he can use to reveal areas of our hearts that we have yet to surrender to him. That he'll allow people that come into our lives to help us see little areas that we've yet to allow him to have control. But it's not a matter of the things and the places we go and there's wisdom and, and, and discernment in those things. But the real place we need to look is in our hearts. What needs, to be, what needs to take place in our hearts? Jesus teaches that it all starts in the heart. That's what he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount in Mark chapter, uh, Mark chapter uh, 6 and 7. Jesus is talking about a number of things, and he says, you've heard it said this way, but I tell you it's this way. And he takes, he takes the law, and he, the Old Testament law, and he begins to expand it. And he says, you've heard that it was said to, that not to commit adultery with a woman. He says, but I tell you, just to look lustfully at a woman is the same thing. He said, it's not just a matter of external. It's a matter of internal heart issues. And he continues to do that with a number of things. He brings it down to a matter of a heart issue. That's what Jesus continually does. He brings it back to the heart. And so when struggles and temptations and sin happen in your life, obviously there needs to be repentance. There needs to be a surrendering to Christ. There needs to be a recognition of the sin that's been wrong. But I also would encourage individuals to take time to examine what's happening in your heart. What were the things that contributed towards that failure, that contributed towards that sin, that contributed towards that temptation, creating uh, the oppor- ultimately taking root and, and the opportunity uh, taking manifestation in your life? The English Puritan John Owen in his book, Triumph Over Temptation, says that we should learn to note where sin is strong and where grace is weak within us. And he goes on to say, he says that many of us live in cyclic patterns of failure because we fail to, we, we remain strangers to ourselves to recognize the very areas in our heart that we still need to allow Christ to work in and to deal with. And while Jesus teaches to examine and deal with the matters of our hearts, At times, that involves looking at the external influences that impact or enable the heart matters that Jesus is identifying. If you'll notice in verse 23, Jesus still calls the the issues, the sin that he's listed, he still calls it evil, but he doesn't exempt the external while focusing on the internal. In the New Testament, in, in the New Testament instruction that's given to many new believers and to you and me, there's a continual identifying of things that need to be dealt with externally, pointing to heart issues, but things that need to be put off in Colossians 3.8, it says to rid yourself of these things. 
That at times while we look internally at things that need to be dealt with, we also need to take time to examine externally the things that are shaping and influencing our hearts. And I believe part of examining the external influences and enablers enablers of our hearts includes examining the culture in which we live. I really believe that as Christians, that you and I are living in an unprecedented time in American history. That we're living in a time that celebrates immorality and seeks to throw off restraint. That instead of addressing the human heart and its need for God, it seeks to celebrate it. In fact, we, you and I are standing just a few wake, weeks away from a very significant time in American history with the election of a new president. And with the election of a new president, this, whoever the individual is that fills that position, they will have influence over American culture for up to the next 30 years. And the decisions and the things that are taking place and the laws that are either enabled to or enacted upon to either enable or restrict the human heart. Issues that speak directly to what Jesus is identifying in Mark chapter 7 in matters of the heart. And I believe that the real stakes of this election are not a matter of which party occupies the White House and which president, which, which candidate among the candidates gets there. The real stakes in this election are the Christian values and God-given standards by which every Christian is called to live. Where God's word says to restrain the human heart and resist the sinful passions of this world, many of the matters at stake in our culture today focus on the celebration of the human heart and its freedoms by throwing off restraint and celebrating immorality. And friends, this morning, while my focus will always be that this pulpit will remain focused on the God-given focus of the church, the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as being the only hope for mankind. I will tell every, every professing Christian here this morning that part of addressing the issues of our heart is recognizing the culture we live in and the time we live in and the responsibility that we have with it. I would encourage every, tell every professing Christian here this morning that when you step into the voting booth, and the first thing I would say is be sure to step into the voting booth. Be sure to step into the voting booth. I think for veterans here, it's important to recognize the service that they offered to be able to give that freedom. But it's also important for us as believers to recognize the significance of the moment in which we live. Just a God-ordained moment that we have been appointed to live in. And as you've been positioned in this place and this time, it's important to step into the voting booth. And I would encourage you, when you step into the voting booth, don't go into the voting booth looking to vote a candidate or a specific party because they're your candidate or your party. And I would encourage you don't do that. And I'm not endorsing any one candidate, any one party. Just know that. But I would encourage you, when you step into the voting booth, choose to vote your God-given Christian values that focus on the matters of your heart. So as you prepare to mark your ballot, I would encourage you, here's three questions I would give you that ties right back into what Jesus is identifying here. First thing is, does this candidate's position best reflect and protect God's standards for human sexuality, God's design for marriage, and his intentional design for human life, including the unborn. Secondly, ask yourself, does this candidate's position and policies restrain or enable the issues of the heart that Jesus addresses in Mark chapter 7, verses 22 through 23? Third, ask yourself, does this candidate's positions and policies restrict or protect a gospel-minded Christian's freedom to worship God and stand against morality in our current culture? But those are significant questions that we need to evaluate our hearts with and, and also evaluate our country with. That's something that I've done, and, and I'll just continue to reinforce this, not endorsing a candidate, not endorsing um, a party. 
But there's a paper I've put at the foyer, in the foyer at the Welcome Center that is uh, written by the national leader of the Assemblies of God, Dr. George Wood. And again, not, he's not endorsing any one party or the other, but he, is, he expands on some of these, these issues of the heart that I'm talking about this morning. And I really would encourage each believer to take time to go by and grab a copy. And you might look at this morning and you might say, how did we go from talking about our hearts to the political climate and culture of our nation? And I believe that part of, and part of walking in obedience to God's word is addressing the matters of our hearts. And part of addressing the matters of our hearts is addressing the systems and leaders in our culture that enable or remove the laws that either restrain or enable the desires of our hearts. That there's no way around it. Ron Sider in his book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, says it this way. And the book focuses, his book, The, Evangel- the Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, focuses on the inconsistencies between the American professing Christian with what we profess versus how we live. And he says this. He says, if the church seeks to be a visible manifestation of Jesus's dawning kingdom rather than a carbon copy of the fallen world which is passing away, then the church inevitably is profoundly countercultural. Precisely because we follow Jesus, our culture's Our churches must be loving disruptors of the sinful status quo than comfortable clubs of conformity. It is absolutely essential that the church today recovers this biblical sense of the church as a countercultural community living separate from the world, from the sin of the world. And friends, that does not happen on its own. The biblical model of a countercultural church begins with a countercultural believer. And a countercultural believer begins by doing, as Jesus says in Mark 7, by examining our own hearts and looking in our own lives. Failing to examine the issues and the matters in our hearts in light of God's word leads to a state of deception and a state of sin. And that's what Jesus reveals. And friends, the last thing that I would share with you this morning when it comes to matters of our heart, is that God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When it comes to our heart, God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. See, the religious leaders were all focused on, on doing all of the rhythms and routines and traditions to try to make things right, to try to, to basically make themselves clean again. And all that those things pointed to was the fact that we could not do it, we cannot do it, in and of ourselves. As Jesus taught, there was remedy for all who wanted it. As I mentioned earlier, he uses the word defiled or unclean, and that speaks of something that has to be, that is tainted and needs to be washing or restored. And what Jesus did through his life and through his teaching, through his death and his resurrection, was that he didn't just identify what was wrong, but he offered a solution for things to be made right. He offered himself. As a solution for our hearts to be transformed, for our minds to be renewed, for our lives to be set right with God. Psalm 51, it says that he can create in us a pure heart, a renewed heart, a transformed heart. That he has the ability and is willing to transform our hearts. And in transforming our hearts, if you're here this morning and you've yet to place your faith in Jesus Christ, then the heart transformation begins with a step of repentance the step of faith. When we speak of repentance, as we look in Scripture, it talks about a changing of mind and changing direction, that it's a, it's a radical changing in the direction in which we're living, but it begins with a radical direction of changing where our heart is positioned. 
And so a heart that's been not, no longer held for self, but presented to God. And then the second part of repentance is a matter of a changing of how we think. And a changing of how we think is, means not only seeing our sin as God sees it, but agreeing with what he says about it. Recognizing sin as sin with what God calls sin. Not trying to justify it, not trying to argue with it, not trying to excuse it or exempt it, not trying to minimize it, but recognizing anything that misses God's mark is called sin. And the amazing thing about what God does when it comes to our hearts is that with a simple prayer, with a simple confession, with a simple expression of need, that he comes in and he radically transforms and frees and delivers and renews our hearts. And friends, if you're here this morning and you have placed your faith in Christ, he still renews hearts. He still renews minds. And that you might be here this morning and you have been bombarded with thoughts, you've been bombarded with doubt, your heart's been burdened, your heart's been heavy, your heart's been any number of things, but you know the struggle and it's between you and God. That this morning, He can renew your heart and make it clean. He can renew your heart and restore it and make you brand new and make you completely whole. And I really believe in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ that that place of repentance, that, that place of heart transformation is not a one-time thing. But it's a daily thing. It's a daily renewal, a daily transformation, a daily washing, a daily presenting, a daily surrendering. It's a daily releasing of our hearts and giving them to God. And as we do, we find that there's hope, there's peace, there's freedom that, is, that floods our hearts in a moment that only Jesus can bring. Things that only he can do in us. It's only found in him. I'm gonna invite you to stand with me this morning as we prepare to close. I just invite you to bow your head, close your eyes with me.